I'm Jessica Powers. And I'm James Saunders. On this week's episode, we will be discussing debts and how to enforce them, giving particular consideration to the measures implemented during the COVID-19 pandemic. Despite the news today that we've avoided a double-dip recession and that our economy is a coiled spring, the pandemic has obviously had a huge impact upon personal and corporate finances. A host of statistics and reports on personal debt show that lower-income families have been disproportionately affected, with roughly 6 million adults falling behind on one household bill during the pandemic. It's been well publicised that corporate insolvency rates have fallen, but the Insolvency Service considers that this is a likely consequence of court delays, statutory restrictions and government support. In the current climate, the accumulation of debt is bad news for both debtors and creditors. So what can be done? Let's take a look at enforcement options and how they have been affected by temporary measures. It makes sense, I think, to start with the traditional methods of enforcing judgment debts. Of course, to enforce a judgment debt, you first need a judgment. No restrictions have been imposed on the issue of Part 7 claims, but it has to be said that the pandemic has no doubt increased the time between issue and trial. In both of our experiences, and anecdotally, it seems that the county court is particularly struggling with remote working. The vast majority of county courts have only recently begun operating video hearings, if at all, which has seen contested hearings with oral evidence adjourned repeatedly during the pandemic to date. Add in absence of staff where resources were already under significant pressure and absent judges, and the picture does not look good for getting judgment quickly in the county court at the moment. On the other hand, the High Court does seem to have adapted brilliantly to these new ways of working. And whilst it may take slightly longer than before the pandemic to get to a final hearing, the wheels of justice are definitely continuing to turn. Assuming that you already have or managed to get a judgment debt, then the obvious avenues of enforcement are as follows. A charging order, a third party debt order, an attachment of earnings order or enforcement against goods. The first method, a charging order, needs little introduction and will be familiar to most if not all practitioners. Charging orders can be obtained over a debtor's interest in land, securities or funds in court. The process was made much more paper-based by amendments to Part 73 of the Civil Procedure Rules a few years back and it is now possible to obtain a final charging order entirely without a hearing, assuming that no objection is made by the debtor. It is always worth a quick check of the individual insolvency register and the gazette before the final charging order is made, but particularly so now, given the financial circumstances that many people are finding themselves in. And that's because the court will not make a final charging order if the debtor has entered into bankruptcy or liquidation. To do so would prefer the judgment creditor over the whole body of unsecured creditors. Another method of enforcement for those with judgment debts is third-party debt orders. These will enable a judgment creditor to obtain payment of a debt from a person who owes money to the debtor. Typically, third-party debt orders are obtained against the debtor's bank. However, perhaps of particular note, given the situation we currently find ourselves in, is the fact that rent due to a judgment debtor can also be attached, providing that it has fallen due. Third-party debt orders are always a bit of a lottery, and they only secure the amount owed to the judgment debtor at the date of service of the interim order. Also, where a bank is the intended target of a third-party debt order, it's worth remembering that if the judgment debtor is an individual, they can also make a hardship application to the court on the basis that they are struggling to meet living expenses. The court is generally speaking sympathetic to such applications and the judgment creditor is unlikely to have much basis to object to them. Attachment of earnings orders, as the name suggests, requires employers of judgment debtors to deduct an amount from the judgment debtor's earnings and pay it directly to the judgment creditor. 
whilst attachment of earnings relating to benefits have been stopped, or at least the guidance from the Department of Work and Pensions is they should be stopped during the pandemic. There in fact doesn't appear to be any guidance from the government indicating that employers should stop making such deductions under an attachment of earnings order if the relevant employee is in receipt of furlough pay. James and I can't see anything in the relevant act that would prohibit attachment of earnings operating as against furlough pay. So in those circumstances, whilst perhaps a little morally questionable, it does seem possible to make attachment of earnings orders even where an employee is currently on furlough. The final category of methods of enforcement is taking control of goods. And in respect of that method, there have been various restrictions imposed on the ability of enforcement agents to take goods located at a dwelling house for obvious reasons. It does not appear that any of those restrictions are currently in force with Regulation 2 of the Public Health Coronavirus Protection from Eviction and Taking Control of Goods Regulations 2020 having been repealed on the 2nd of December 2020. Since, James, you've mentioned the protection from eviction regulations, as I will call them for shorthand, given the ridiculous number of brackets involved in that title, let's segue neatly into the current state of play with regards to possession proceedings. As was well publicised, 2020 saw the imposition of a stay on Part 55 residential possession proceedings. That stay came to an end on the 20th of September 2020, but a temporary practice direction Practice Direction 55C is in force until the 30th of July 2021. Existing claims can be restarted by a notice of reactivation. New claims can also be commenced, but at least until the 31st of March this year, the notice periods relevant to residential possession claims have been increased by Schedule 29 of the Coronavirus Act 2020, up to, in some cases, as long as six months. Information known to the landlord as to the effect of the pandemic on the tenant must also be given in all cases, whether by reactivation notice or as part of the details included in a new claim. Assuming then you get a possession order, what happens about enforcement? Well, the Public Health Coronavirus Protection from Eviction England Regulations 2021, more brackets, uh, impose a blanket ban on the delivering of notice of eviction to dwelling houses and the execution of writs or warrants of possession at dwelling houses. Interestingly, whilst the heading of the relevant regulation is residential tenancies, intentionally or otherwise, the broad drafting of Regulation 2.1 means that there can be no enforcement of possession orders at all. That's the case even where, for example, you've got a mortgagee or a trustee in bankruptcy who is entitled to possession by way of an order for possession and sale. James and I have discussed this and we think that there must have been a mistake because there is no cohesion between the title of the regulation and its contents. But we do think that the proper interpretation of the actual regulation, excluding the heading, is that there at the moment is no possibility of enforcing possession orders against residential property, regardless of the status of the person who's obtained the possession order. There are limited exceptions, however, to that blanket ban, for example, where the order for possession was made against trespassers or in cases of antisocial behaviour or where there are substantial rent arrears, which is defined as at least six months rent. One point to note in relation to trespassers is the definition included in the CPR and the particular requirement that the identity of the trespassers must not be known, which is an unfortunate potential consequence of the reference to the CPR provision. Moving then to commercial tenancies. Pre-pandemic, the most common form of enforcement for a commercial landlord in the case of unpaid rent were forfeiture or insolvency. The availability of those remedies changed with the Coronavirus Act 2020 and the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020. Dealing with the first of those, 
Commercial forfeiture for arrears of rent is currently banned by Section 82 of the Coronavirus Act 2020, and that's until the 31st of March of this year. But like many other pieces of legislation passed during the pandemic, the door has been left open for a further extension of the relevant period. To assist landlords unable to forfeit leases, Section 82.2 does provide that, during the relevant period, the landlord will not be taken to have waived the right of forfeiture for non-payment of rent unless an express written waiver is given. There are a few points to bear in mind. The first is that the restriction on forfeiture only applies to business tenancies to which Part 2 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954 applies. Practitioners should check whether the Act is applicable to the particular lease that they are being faced with, but it's worth noting that such tenancies are covered even where they purport to contract out of the protections of the 1954 Act. Another point worth bearing in mind is the definition of rent, which includes any sum that a tenant is liable to pay under a relevant business tenancy. So it's not just rent in the common sense. And finally, forfeiture does not lead to recovery of the debt owed, of course, but it is a way to retrieve the landlord's property so that it can be turned back to profitable use. Of course, given the current position, forfeiture may not even achieve that. As we have already briefly mentioned, pre-pandemic, it was pretty common for commercial landlords to resort to statutory demands and winding up petitions where commercial tenants did not pay rent. The Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020, as amended, has imposed restrictions on the presentation of winding up petitions until the 31st of March of this year. Petitions cannot be presented in reliance upon statutory demands served in the period since the 1st of March 2020, and cannot be presented before the 31st of March 2021 unless the so-called coronavirus condition is satisfied. That condition means that a petitioning creditor must state on the face of the petition and satisfy the court that the company's inability to pay the petition debt is not connected to the pandemic. That is likely to be exceptionally difficult if the debt in question comprises rent owed by a non-essential retailer, for example. I have heard of a few contested hearings as to the applicability of the coronavirus condition going ahead, but generally it seems that petitioning creditors are taking a pragmatic view. If the company contests the assertion that its inability to pay the debt is not connected to the pandemic and offers a grain of credible evidence in support of that, then petitioning creditors are obviously better off agreeing to the dismissal of the petition rather than incurring further costs on a contested hearing, which it might never recover as against an insolvent company. There are limited points of authority on the coronavirus test, largely in the context of restraining the presentation of winding up petitions prior to the test fully coming into force. But the emphasis that Jess places on putting forward some credible evidence to the petitioning creditor is particularly important in my experience. The alternative and more hands-on approach is potentially commercial rent arrears recovery. The practical utility of this mechanism of debt recovery has, like many other enforcement measures, been significantly curtailed by temporary legislation. The Taking Control of Goods and Certification of Enforcement Agents Regulations 2020 initially increased the minimum amount of net unpaid rent from an amount equal to seven days rent to an amount equal to 90 days rent. Subsequent regulations have increased that still further up to, in the most recent iteration, 366 days unpaid rent. That minimum period applies between the 25th of December 2020 and the 31st of March 2021. The same restriction applies to prevent a landlord from requiring a subtenant to pay rent directly to the landlord. Commercial tenants then do currently have a significant degree of protection when it comes to being required to pay rent to a landlord. 
However, we think that looking at things from a tenant's perspective, it is still likely to be preferable to attempt to negotiate a reduced rent payment plan with a landlord rather than simply relying on the mechanisms we have discussed, which prevent landlords from taking enforcement action. That's because although those measures are strong, they of course remain temporary. Generally, we think it likely that the legislative restrictions will be released in a gradual manner, taking the lead from what has happened in the arena of possession proceedings, which began with a wide-ranging stay and has transitioned to allow proceedings to restart or to be commenced, with the focus instead turning to preventing eviction enforcement and delaying the start of proceedings with increased notice requirements. There is of course no guarantee that the same approach will prevail for commercial and personal debt recovery, but that is likely if the government is to avoid a flood of recovery actions. It does of course remain open to a landlord to pursue a standard Part 7 claim for the debt and then to consider the enforcement options that we've already looked at in respect of judgment debts. Indeed, if the fact of the debt is uncontroversial, then landlords might justifiably commence a claim by the Part 8 procedure and therefore benefit from its expedited timetable. Alternatively, if Part 7 is used, then summary judgment may be available, particularly where the lease contains a no-set-off clause. Some commercial landlords may find themselves in the fortunate position of having the tenants' liabilities separately guaranteed, in which case they can pursue the guarantor directly, provided the guarantee allows for independently seeking to recover from the guarantor. If the guarantor is an individual, a statutory demand and bankruptcy petition also remains an option, as bizarrely there are no restrictions on personal insolvency proceedings. I've never understood that. I haven't. It was one of my biggest thoughts at the start of all of this was why we're allowing people to still be subject to bankruptcy proceedings, but we're protecting corporations. I don't understand the the discrepancy. I don't know if it's just proceeding on the assumption that no one's going to bother pursuing someone who hasn't got any money in the current circumstances, but then that equally applies logically to corporate debtors. So yeah, I don't know. A similar route may be available to recover against a former tenant, particularly where an authorised guarantee agreement has been provided under the Landlord and Tenant Covenants Act 1995. However, practitioners should be aware of the strict time limits for pursuing this route to recovery under the Act. A Section 17 notice must be served within six months of the fixed charge, in this case rent, becoming due. Section 17 also carries with it the right for the former tenant, upon paying the sums that are being demanded, to seek an overriding lease which ranks between the landlord and the tenant who's failed to pay. Let's now look at some relatively new legislation. So in recent years we've seen concerted efforts by the legislature to ease the burden on individuals facing debt recovery actions. For example, the pre-action protocol for debt claims was introduced in 2018 in order to encourage creditors and debtors to fully engage with each other and attempt to reach a settlement without the need to issue proceedings. Those efforts continue with the enactment of the Debt Respite Scheme Regulations 2020, which are set to come into force on the 4th of May of this year. The regulations provide for two types of what are called breathing spaces, a standard breathing space, and in a significant and progressive legislative move, a mental health crisis breathing space. A standard breathing space is available to anyone with problem debt. It gives them legal protections from creditor action for up to 60 days. The protections include pausing most enforcement action and contact from creditors and freezing most interest and charges on their debts. A mental health crisis breathing space is only available to someone who is receiving mental health crisis treatment and it has some stronger protections. It lasts as long as the person's mental health crisis treatment plus 30 days and that is no matter how long that treatment itself lasts. A breathing space can only be started by a debt advice provider who is authorised by the FCA to offer debt counselling or a local authority if they provide debt advice to residents. 
Only the debtor can access a standard breathing space, but in the case of a mental health crisis breathing space, various other individuals and bodies can apply for the debt advisor, and they include the debtor's carer, social workers and mental health professionals. The debt advisor must be satisfied that the debtor cannot or is unlikely to be able to repay all or some of the debt and that the breathing space is appropriate. The insolvency service will be responsible for maintaining the electronic service that debt advisors will use to start the breathing space process. Standard breathing spaces will not be available to individuals in an individual voluntary arrangement or who are an undischarged bankrupt. A second breathing space cannot be initiated if the debtor is already in a breathing space or had a breathing space in the 12 months preceding their application. No such time limits apply to a mental health crisis breathing space. Breathing spaces only extend to what are known as qualifying debts. Although the guidance acknowledges that most debts will likely count, debts on credit cards, store cards, payday loans, overdrafts and mortgage or rent arrears will all be called, as will government debts like tax and benefit debts. Joint debts can be included, even if only one debtor applies, and the protections will extend to all joint debtors. Guarantor loans can also be included, but there is no protection for the guarantor unless they too apply for a breathing space. There are a number of specifically excluded debts, for example, secured debts, debts incurred as a result of fraud, criminal fines, student loans and child maintenance. Debts which solely relate to a debtor's business cannot be included if the debtor is VAT registered or is a partner in the business with another person. As a creditor, if you're told that a debt owed to you is in a breathing space, you must stop all action related to that debt and apply the relevant protections. These protections must stay in place until the breathing space moratorium ends. There will be an electronic and postal notice service which will inform creditors about each debt which is the subject of a breathing space and when the breathing space started. As to the protections which apply, unless the creditor obtains permission from the court, they cannot do any of the following. Firstly, they cannot require a debtor to pay interest that accrues on a moratorium debt during the moratorium period. Secondly, they cannot require a debtor to pay fees, penalties or charges. Thirdly, they cannot take any enforcement action in respect of the moratorium debt, whether the right to take such action arises under a contract or by virtue of any enactment or otherwise. And finally, they cannot instruct an agent to take any of the actions which have previously been mentioned. As for the interrelation between the breathing space moratorium and other methods of enforcement by a creditor, if a creditor to whom a breathing space debt is owed has a bankruptcy petition or court proceedings pending in relation to that debt, they must notify the relevant court or tribunal. The court or tribunal must then stay any bankruptcy petition and deal with any other action or proceeding. There is also provision for the extension of limitation periods and enforcement deadlines which would otherwise expire during or shortly after the moratorium ends. Watch this space for a practice direction covering the breathing space scheme, which has been foreshadowed by the recently announced amendments to the civil procedure rules. A new Rule 70.7 provides for such a practice direction, although I haven't yet seen any draft. The final topic is something to bear in mind when seeking to agree debt reductions or holidays. Many who find themselves in difficult financial situations have sought and continue to seek to negotiate alternative arrangements with their creditors. Unless this is part of a formal CVA or IVA process, debtors may run the risk of a change of heart when lockdowns ease and recovery methods become available once more. And that's particularly so if creditors have agreed to accept a reduced payment in apparent discharge of their debt. Our listeners will no doubt be familiar with the classic textbook problem surrounding part payment of a debt. 
unless debtors have secured agreements by deed or given clear additional consideration for a reduction in their debt obligations, these deals may be reopened and altered at a later date. The rule that a promise by a creditor to accept part payment in full settlement of a debt or to accept deferred payment without more is to be treated as made without consideration may come in for some review in the future, potentially arising from a case brought about by the pandemic. The Supreme Court, in its obiter remarks in MWB and Rock Advertising, suggested that although that was the general rule which remained in place at present, that it may be reconsidered in future. Of course, one workaround to the application of that rule might be to rely upon another rule, being that part payment of a debtor's obligations by a third party does amount to good consideration and will release the debtor from their remaining obligations. But of course, the preferable approach may simply be to vary the contract in line with the revised payment terms. The changes to the rules and regulations on creditor enforcement that Jessica and I have outlined have left the country largely in stasis for the last year. However, we, like many others in the profession, anticipate a flood of debt recovery action in the second half of 2021. And we can only emphasise that if you have clients or are clients who have debt issues now, it's better to take proactive steps to try and negotiate with the creditor whilst the restrictions are still in place, rather than waiting until those restrictions are lifted and then being on the end of a winding up petition or enforcement action. And with that, hopefully helpful advice and an overview of the available enforcement methods and how they've been altered during the pandemic, that is the end of this week's episode. Thank you, James, for joining me. Thank you to you, our listeners, for listening and downloading and supporting this podcast. Please feel free to rate us on your podcast source of choice. And if you do have any topics that you think it would be good for us to cover, drop our events team a line. But until the next episode, goodbye.